All right, you can have a seat. We're grateful for this gorgeous fall feeling morning. It's such nice weather. Great to be out here together. Uh, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14, and we are in our 45th sermon uh, in the gospel of Mark, and uh, just slowly making our way through it and going verse by verse, text by text. And Mark chapter 14, today we get to the passage, uh, verse 32 through 42, where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, a very familiar scene, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And as you're turning there, let me just uh, prep us for this passage by helping you realize that these are Jesus's last moments of freedom, right? He's not in, in custody yet. He has not been arrested. Uh, these are his last moments of freedom. And it begs the question, what would you do if you knew you had a few hours before you were going to be arrested on false charges and uh, taken in captivity? to a fake trial uh, filled with false witnesses who will accuse you of things that you've never done, and the penalty for that will be execution. It gives us some insight that in the humanity of Jesus, you know, Philippians 2 says he set aside his deity and he took on humanity, and so in his humanity, um, Jesus potentially could have just left. <laughs> He's free. He's a free man. He could have crossed over the Kidron Brook through the valley, got to the Mount of Olives, climbed the Mount of Olives, and instead of going to this private garden that he knew Judas knew about, he could have just kept cruising, right? He could have just kept on going and skipped the crucifixion. But Jesus went to the place and he went to the garden in his last moments of freedom. These were his last few remaining moments of freedom. And so let's read together verses 32 to 42 and see what Jesus did in these last moments. Verse 32 says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane uh, is a word that means the place of the olive press. Uh, Jerusalem was a big city, and as big cities go, there are different districts of the city. Right outside the city, there, if we had a bigger city area, the zoning requirements would be that factories and uh, those sorts of things would be zoned for a particular area. Just over here on the other side of the cemetery, uh, you see a factory and you see the, the train tracks. It's a very um, it's a kind of a bustling area Monday through Friday here. Um, in the same way, Gethsemane would have been an industrial area. There would have been a lot of groves, a lot of gardens. Um, there's an olive press, and, and this is the place of the olive press. Farmers would have brought their olives to be uh, processed at this area. It was a, basically an industrial area. And when I visited Jerusalem not too many years ago, all around the outskirts of the city were these areas. There were places, you remember in Bethlehem, there were shepherds watching over their sheep. Well, a sheep were a major industry, and they were grazing outside of Jerusalem because the need for sheep in Jerusalem, especially around the time of the Passover, were great. The need for olives was a great need. And so there was a great industrial complex that supported um, the need for olives. And so this area, think of it like a, an industrial area. There was an olive press where they would have brought their olives 
And this olive press, uh, they would have put this basket in the middle of this press and its first lowering upon that basket of olives would have produced extra virgin olive oil, right? It's the first press. The first press, just whatever runs off as the bag comes down is the purest oil. They would have taken that and separated it and that would have been sold for the higher price. Then the second press, the second press of oil um, would have been used for other purposes. And the third press was the, where they put all their weight into it and they squeezed every last ounce of oil out of those olives in this place and that would have been used for common things uh, like lighting a lamp or other common things for burning uh, and so Jesus is in this place of this olive press and it's interesting that he prays three times in this same way in this same place so he goes to this place Gethsemane uh, he has crossed over the Kidron Valley this is after the, the institution of the Lord's Supper and the Upper Room Discourse and as he's crossing over he's climbing the 46 600 foot elevation. If you know Mount Pocono, that's the same sort of elevation. And so as he's climbing up, he arrives at this private garden called the Mount of Olives in this area. And he tells his disciples, that is the larger group of followers, he tells the disciples, sit here while I pray. He takes with him, verse 33, Peter, James, and John, those inner three who have gone with him a few other times. They went with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. And he takes with him Peter, James, and John. And the text says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34, he tells Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, just at reading this, an immediate observation, if you can remember the Upper Room Discourse, the five chapters devoted in the Gospel of John, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, in that five-chapter span, also recorded in Matthew and here in Mark and also in Luke, Jesus spends quite a bit of time and activity in the Upper Room. They're, they're at the Upper Room in the city of Jerusalem for quite some time and there's a lot of activity that took place and the mood the atmosphere is almost energetic upbeat um, Jesus is deliberate he is teaching them a specific 
series of things. Um, he is serving them. He washes their feet. He teaches them about kingdom leadership. If you want to be a leader within the kingdom, you have to be a servant. You have to be humble. You have to do for people. If you want to be in leadership, he teaches them that. They eat the Passover meal together, so they're eating together. Uh, he institutes the Lord's Supper there in the upper room. He predicts the betrayal of Judas and sends him on his way. He also predicts the falling away of all the other apostles. He takes a lot of time and he teaches them really for the first time in his three years with them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says, it's really better for you that I go away. And they're thinking, what are you talking about? You going away. And he's saying the ministry of the Holy Spirit will look like this. And he teaches them for an extended period of time about the coming of the Holy Spirit and all about his new ministry that they would experience. He teaches them about heaven in the upper room discourse. And he tells them, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he's going to talk to them about their heavenly dwelling, that they have, a, as it were, an abode or a dwelling place that Jesus will be going to prepare for them up there. He teaches them about how to abide in him as a fruitful branch abides in the tree. He teaches them how to stand strong and that they should stand strong under future persecution. He answers their questions. He encourages them. John 17, the whole chapter almost is a, a dedicated prayer of Jesus praying over the apostles in that upper room area. They sing together and then they walk out together. And so the mood from the upper room was um, Jesus in sort of an upbeat, energetic way, covering a whole range of topics. If you were just to sit down and read the, those five chapters of John, it would take you some time. And if you add in the activities of washing feet and eating and the Lord's Supper and all the different activities, Judas coming and going and all the things that were taking place, it could have taken up to three or four hours that they were together. But once all that is over, once all of that activity is finished, there's only one thing left to do for Jesus, and that's surrender. That's it. That's all he has left on his to-do list as a free man is to go back to the garden where he knows that Judas, the betrayer, and the um, guards and the religious officials are going to come and rendezvous in about an hour, maybe two hours. They're going to meet him there. And this is his last moments of freedom. And so Jesus, this is all he has left to do is to surrender. And this is a battle. And so we see a rapid decline in the mood and the tone of Jesus. Listen to the words. Listen to the description from Matthew and Luke and from Hebrews. Matthew says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here. And then going further, he fell on his face and he began to pray. Jesus, almost to the point of death as a result of his sorrow. Luke records it this way. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him because he was in agony, praying even more earnestly, <clears throat> praying so much that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling from the ground. Jesus is so consumed with agony that he's bleeding. By the time Judas and the guards get him, he would have been red with blood from the agony. He describes this, Luke records for us, as the hour of the power of the darkness. 
If you want to get a glimpse into this hour, Jesus describes this as the darkest hour, the hour of the darkness, of the power of darkness. That's this hour. If you've ever wondered how they knew what he was praying when he went further away from everybody, when we have a concept of praying, if I were to say to you, why don't you go over there and say a prayer? Even when we did the Lord's Supper, everybody was sort of silently, quietly praying. You didn't really even hear any sort of murmurs. But listen to how Hebrews 5 describes this prayer. In Hebrews 5, 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from this death. Jesus is wailing, crying, with loud tears, with agony, with emotion, this hour of prayer. And it's not too surprising. After all, he is carrying a heavier burden than the cross. He describes it as the cup. And we're going to find out why that burden was so heavy. So let's look back at this passage Let's take a look at verse 35 and get into depth about why Jesus is feeling so much weight. Verse 35 says he went further, he gets on the ground, and he prays that if it's possible that this hour would pass from him. This is a hard hour for Jesus. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. That's the most intimate term for God. Abba was the word that a child would call his dad. It's the equivalent of daddy. Jesus is crying out to his father, daddy, if it's possible, all things are possible for you. You can do anything you desire. And if it's possible, please take this away from me. Jesus says, Father, all things, Abba, all things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This cup, this cup, what is this cup? The cup describes the cup of wrath. Throughout Jesus's earthly experience, he is presumably had an unbroken and an unhindered, perfect, sinless relationship and connection to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. You know, our relationship with God is marred and muffled and warped and disfigured from the effects of sin. Jesus never had that distortion in his relationship with God. He had a pure, sinless, perfect connection. There was never a prayer that Jesus offered when he didn't sense the nearness of God or didn't have a, we are separated from God by our sin. Jesus never knew that separation. Not in his earthly life, not in his eternal existence. He never experienced that. But now here he is in the garden and he's praying and maybe for the first time in his existence, there is no comfort, there's no strength, there's no, um, there's no connection to God the Father. But the agony of pending doom and the looming wrath and judgment. And this is what is overwhelming him. And it's described as the cup of wrath. Now, if you and I were to have surgery tomorrow, 
and we were to uh, to go and have some sort of a surgery, we might be anxious. We might be nervous about it. We might call a few friends and say, hey, we pray for me. I'm having surgery tomorrow. Uh, they're going to use a scalpel. They're going to cut me open in this place. They're going to go into my body and they're going to repair something. And, and we might be anxious about that. We might even be really fearful about that. We might, we might be terrified about that. And, and that's probably going to be under anesthesia, right? We're not going to be experiencing it. Jesus, I would imagine, is, is worried about the crucifixion and that's playing into his distress here. But it's not the crucifixion that he's worried about. Jesus knows what crucifixion is. He knows it involves nails. He knows it involves a, tr a Roman tribunal, which might include a scourging and the whip. He knows all that, and he's not worried about his physical safety. That's not what he's concerned about in this hour. He's not even really distressed and sorrowful that his best friends, his closest companions, he just called them friends in the upper room. You're no longer my, my, <clears throat> my um, disciples, but I consider you my friends. He's not even worried and consumed in this hour about their falling away. He's not even really consumed in this hour that Judas will betray him. He's not even consumed about the false trial, the false accusations, and the complete miscarriage of justice or injustice, really, that he's about to face. In this hour, Jesus is overwhelmed by one reality, primarily this cup. He says it specifically, remove this cup. What is this cup? It's clear from the Old Testament that the taking of the cup denotes Jesus taking upon the wrath of God. If you were to look in your notes in your Bible, the footnotes say that clearly. My ESV study Bible, that's the sentence taken from it, that the cup denotes the wrath of God. And it's referred to in Isaiah 51, in Jeremiah 25, in Lamentations 4, in Ezekiel 23, Habakkuk 2, Zechariah 12, in all these places in the Old Testament, if you were just to do a simple word search, what is the cup, it would come up as all those verses, all those passages. And in all those places, the prophets describe the cup as a cup of wrath that will cause staggering. The cup of wrath is God's righteous fury and his wrath poured out on the guilty. You understand it to some degree. It's the same outrage to a lesser degree when you and I see a miscarriage of justice in our society. I don't know, maybe six months before Julie and I moved to Souderton, we still lived in Hatboro. We were still working at another church. And as we were looking around, we bought a house here, and, and when we moved here to, uh, to Souderton, we, we didn't connect the dots of what had just taken place really in our neighborhood, and that was the murder of a young girl in an apartment complex at 2nd Street and Chestnut Street. We weren't here. We moved here just a few months after that. But when we learned of what had taken place, we, I remember seeing it on the news when we lived in Hatboro and, and seeing it on the news and not connecting the dots with Soderton. It was before we moved, but feeling a sense of outrage. What, what is that? That's terrible. What happened to this person at the hands of this man? And when we moved here and we talked to people who lived here, maybe you even remember that there was a crowd, almost a riotous crowd crowd that gathered 
on that square, this is an apartment building right across from the judge's um, uh, his courtroom and that this uh, crowd of hundreds of people gathered in outrage over what had taken place to this child. And now imagine for yourself that as they took this offender into custody from this apartment complex and took him over to the courthouse, now imagine that judge in, in spite of all the evidence mounting against this person, telling that person he could go free, that he found no reason for him to be punished, there would be an enormous amount of outrage. That's a small degree of the outrage and wrath that God experiences toward sinners. We want the guilty to be punished, don't we? We want that, unless we know that we're the sinner. Then we want mercy. <laughs> we always want the guilty to be punished unless we're the guilty one, and the guilty ones want grace and mercy, right? But God, as a righteous judge, has to punish sin. And this is described as the righteous wrath of God, metaphorically pictured as a cup. Jesus is about to drink metaphorically, the cup of God's wrath. So here he is, picture him in the garden, sinless, pure, and righteous. He's never known sin. He's never known separation from God. And in just a few moments, he's going to embrace sin. He's going to become sin. Second Corinthians says, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might experience the righteousness of God. Jesus, who has never known brokenness or severed relationship with God, is about to fully experience the separation from God. This is what has him severely distressed to the point at which he is bleeding. He is in agony. An angel is there helping him, trying to revive him, helping him to fortify himself to go through with this. And Jesus' prayer is, Lord, don't make me go through with this. If there's another way, let there be another way. Do you see the, the wrestling of Jesus' human will? This is a nonsensical prayer for the Son of God. There is no other way. He knows the Scriptures. He knows that the Lamb of God must be sacrifice. He knows all that. And yet everything is becoming a reality to him in the moment that he realizes that he's going to have to go through with this. Jesus is in agony. Isaiah 53 says that God was pleased to crush him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was placed the chastisement that brought us peace. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do you know the New Testament never describes Jesus laughing? Never describes Jesus smiling. It describes him weeping. It describes him in agony. It describes him in anguish. It describes him as brokenhearted. It describes him 
as grieved over the condition of Jerusalem. It describes him as his heart goes out to those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But it never describes him as laughing. It never describes him as happy. But it does describe him as despised, rejected. And Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And the greater weight, you say, well, what made Jesus so gloomy? What was wrong? It's this. It's this hour. It's the separation that he's, he's enjoyed fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. He's never known sin, and he's about to know sin. He's never known separation from God. He's about to know separation from God, and he's struggling with that. And this is the cup of wrath and its effects on Jesus. He drinks this cup that we deserved. He drinks it on our behalf. And if there was any comfort, maybe he expected to find it from his closest friends. If you look at verse 37, three times he asked James and Peter and John to pray with him and to watch with him. And three times he finds them asleep. He, he says, couldn't you watch for one hour? Couldn't you even pray with me for one hour? Listen, don't be too hard on these guys. You might think, well, they just had a full meal. Right? They climbed the mountain. It's late at night. They've been, it's been, they're sleepy. There's, but Luke tells us that they're asleep for sorrow. They're asleep because of their sorrow, and they didn't even know how to answer Jesus. Have you ever been so sad, so much in agony, that you just want to sleep? Your sleep is like a tranquilizer. It's almost as though the hope is that we can just have a few hours of not feeling anxious or worried about whatever it is that's troubling us, that sleep will help that. For those who are in greater agony, you even start to dream about your agony. The disciples are sleeping for sorrow. Jesus is wailing. Jesus is crying. Jesus is praying in a loud voice, and they're so overwhelmed. They're so overwhelmed for Jesus that they have no action but to fall asleep. We see in all this the most triumphant prayer that Jesus ever prays, and it's these words, not my will, but yours be done. To conquer the will is the battleground, and Jesus conquers his own human will that says, not my will, but yours be done. My will is that there would be another way, but there's no other way, so I will yield. I'll surrender. And even up until this moment, Jesus surrenders, and his last verse in this passage says, rise, let's go, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus doesn't rise and say, let's run, my betrayer is at hand. He says, let's go and meet them. John records that, that uh, there was a, a group of people, soldiers, uh, maybe Roman soldiers, temple guards, religious officials. Uh, they're coming with torches. There are no flashlights. There are no city lights. It's the middle of the night, and Jesus instead of running from them he could have hid from them in the darkness but he runs to them and he asks them according to John's gospel who are you seeking and Jesus they say Jesus of Nazareth and he says what I am he and at those words all of them fall over <laughs> at the words I am 
the entire crowd of those who would arrest Jesus fall over. They get back up and he asks them again, now who are you seeking? Who's in control here? It's not the guards. It's not the sinners. Jesus surrenders. And it all started, the surrender began in this battleground where Jesus is in agony by himself, alone in the garden, saying, not my will, but yours be done. That's the victory. That's the victory right there. I imagine... As difficult as the cross is, as difficult as the betray is, as difficult as the falling away is, as difficult as the false witnesses and the false trials and the scourging and the crown of thorns, as hard as all those things are, the nails, the cross, as hard as it all is, none of it was as hard as his desire, his surrender in the garden. He fully surrenders to the will of God. And my prayerful application from this passage for you, my pastoral prayer for all those who are hearing my voice is that you would experience surrender and the yielding of your strong will to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That you would surrender. Because to conquer your will is where the battle lies. You hear terms like this, that's a strong-willed person. Or if you were to describe someone who has endured something that is physically threatening to their life, you would say they have a strong will to survive. Or if you meet somebody who's particularly set in their ways, you describe them as willful. It's a willfulness. You hear this when a teacher has to stand in front of 30 kindergartners, right, and exert their will over the strong-willed group. You hear about this when the military breaks down a soldier in order to capture their will. You hear this when training an animal, like a breaking of a horse or the training of a dog. Parents talk about allowing the breaking of the child's will so that the child can become obedient because there's nothing more destructive than a willful, disobedient child. That doesn't get better in their teenage years, right? Willfulness is a bad thing if it's not under control. I remember doing a funeral for a man uh, maybe 10 years ago and against his will, he lost all of his capacity to speak and to use his body. He was such in the grip of this disease that was going to take his life. And his brother asked me to come and minister to him. And I would go to him every week, sometimes two or three times a week. And I would sit across from him and I would read scripture to him. And, and as I would read scripture and pray to him after weeks of this... I looked over at him and I could just see him grimacing every time I would do this. And, and one time I said, I said, you, you have a stubborn, rebellious will, don't you? And he looked over at me and he smiled. This guy looked at me and, and it was as though he said, you can read scripture all you want. You can, re you can pray over me all you want, but, but I have my will. His will was never broken. It always remained resistant and stubborn because your will is powerful. And listen, if you ever hope to have any meaningful service to God the Father, 
If you ever hope to have any victory over sin and temptation in your life, if you ever hope to experience a greater joy and intimacy and fellowship with Jesus Christ, it will come when your will is fully bent to his will. Jesus yielded to the Father's will. Even though he desired a different way, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. A will, your will, my will, when yielded and properly aligned with the purpose and plan of God is incredibly powerful. When your heart is aligned to the purpose and promises of God for your life and you're in full submission to him, it is powerful. You are the most effective tool or weapon in the hand of God when you're most submitted to him. Paul is a prime example of that. And at the same time, you're most ineffective, you're most weak, your worst times are often at the times when you're most in opposition to God and his will for your life. I remember for years trying to start different ministries and trying to um, do something that God had not called me to, nor had he authorized, nor had he even desired, and me taking all my best dreams and all my best hopes and my best plans for my life and presenting them to God and saying, this is my desire. Would you just make it happen? Would you just kind of wave your will and your favor and your blessing over my desires and just let it happen, God? Have you ever had that? Have you ever presented to God a perfectly good plan for your life and almost experienced him laughing at you saying, okay, okay, I see, I understand. This is your idea. This is what you desire. But I remember the frustration, really the anger at times of God not cooperating with my plans. This is what I want. This is what I'm called to. This is what I desire. This is, this is my plan. I remember years of just frustration, trying to bend God's will to mine. And it wasn't until I got to a place of saying, not my will, but yours, that the road opened up for me. <laughs> so there's a problem with a divided heart with an, a divided will, with an unbroken, stubborn, resistant will, an unyielding will. Let me just list a couple of problems that you'll experience. You'll experience division in your own heart. Division. Inconsistency. One day you're for God, one day you're not. If you're not yielded, if you're not submitted to him, one day you're all for kingdom purposes, the next day you're all for your purposes. You'll experience a spiritual schizophrenia. You'll experience pain if your will is divided. Pain, lots of discipline, lots of correction, lots of mistakes, lots of natural consequences from natural sin, lots of stupid decisions with an unbroken will. Third, you'll experience a resistant, stubborn, defiant, difficult path. Have you ever tried to lead someone who is resistant? Have you ever tried to lead people who are stubborn? You know, a good test of leadership is just to look and see who's following. And then to look and see if you can ask people to do something hard that they don't want to do. And that's just a great litmus test for your leadership, right? If people are going to do something you, they don't want to do, 
But have you ever tried to lead people that are resistant, stubborn, and defiant? Think about the people of Israel being drugged through the desert, right? They've been led by God through a, a mighty deliverance through the Red Sea with a fire by day and fire by night and a cloud by day and the parting of the Red Sea and a, a, a miraculous deliverance and yet they're still thinking, God, can we just go back to slavery? Can we just go back to Egypt? That's the equivalent of dragging. Have you ever seen a dog drag their master down the street? Right? Who's in charge there? Or a master trying to drag the dog. Walk this way, right? That's That's the difficulty. Listen, the Bible does not speak well of those who are stubborn and resistant to the Holy Spirit. Peter's going to preach a sermon in Acts, and he's going to tell the people, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, you always resist the Holy Spirit. It's not good to be resistant, stubborn, and defiant. It's fourthly, a problem with an unbroken will is it's confusing. It's confusing to you. It's confusing to people around you. It's inconsistent at best. It is hypocritical at worst. You say things and people around you say, well, is the Lord trustworthy and worth giving my life to? Because if he is, why aren't you doing it? Do you want me to give my life to Jesus? Why don't you give your life to Jesus? You, you want me to follow Christ? Why don't you follow Christ? The message with your lips is, yeah, he's worth it, but the message you give with your life is a resounding no. I don't trust him with my finances. I don't trust him with my time. I don't trust him with my hobbies. I don't trust him with my career. I don't trust him, but I want you to trust him. It's confusing if your will is unsubmitted. And basically, it's ineffective or only partially effective. Who does the Lord look to strengthen? Second Chronicles 16 says the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth to strengthen those hearts that are fully committed to him. Not the resistant, not the stubborn, but in your flesh, when you work according to your own will in opposition to the father's will, all your efforts are in vain. Paul describes this to the Corinthians. And he says that there will come a judgment day for believers when all of our works are stacked up on an altar and they will be exposed to fire and everything that you do in your own flesh, in your own sinful will and desire, it will be destroyed by fire. You'll be saved as one escaping through the flames because God will save you. But all of your works, all of your efforts, everything will not survive if your will is not yielded to the will of God. Listen, the essence of the Garden of Eden was Adam and Eve saying, not your will, but our will. We can eat this fruit, become like God, having our eyes open to good and evil, we, we can do that. That's our will. And so in the, in the Garden of Eden, they said, not your will, but our will be done. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says the opposite not my will, but yours be done. And by the conquering of that declaration, Jesus paves the way for us to be able to say, not my will, but yours be done. Listen, if you want to conquer your will and submit your will to God, just look at some of the insights from this passage. There's a battle raging in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it mirrors the battle that rages in you if you have a stubborn will against God. If you're like a dog on a leash that resists the master. 
Listen to how to conquer your will from the playbook that Jesus gives us here. It's first of all a personal and private battle. There's nobody else who can do this for Jesus. There's nobody else who can conquer the will and say, my, not my will be done, but your will be done. It's only Jesus wrestling with God. It reminds us of Abraham responding in faith to follow the Lord in Genesis 18. It reminds us of Jacob wrestling with God. He sends his whole family over the river. And he's wrestling alone with God by the river. Wrestling until daybreak. I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. It's Joshua determining that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In the smallest and most private place within you, you have to surrender. No one can do this for you. It is a personal, private battle. One of the greatest challenges I face in a counseling ministry are the loved ones around a person who want to help the person and having to face the reality that there's nothing you can do until that person wants help. You can't have an intervention. You can't all gather in their living room and, and confront them and love them and, and try to face them with facts. Until that person wants to be helped, there is nothing you can do but pray that God breaks their will. The worst prayer I have to encourage people to pray is a prayer that I have to ask parents to pray for a rebellious child or a wayward 20-something or a 30-something who's wayward, or even older. And that is, Lord, if they have to be broken, break them hard and fast. If they have to come to the end of themselves, if they have to hit rock bottom, don't let it become a prolonged journey that drags everybody around them down with them. Let them hit rock bottom hard and fast. Parent, that's a prayer you never want to have to pray for your child, for your wayward adult child. But it's necessary because of this reality that a stubborn will has to be dealt with privately and personally by each one of you, whether it's your will or praying for someone else who has a stubborn will. It's personal and private. A second thing that we see here, it's not just a personal private battle, it's a prayerful battle. The battle is in prayer. Jesus cries out, Hebrews 5 tells us, with agony. Elijah cries out against the prophets of Baal to God. Elisha, in the spiritual army that came against him with the Syrians, prays. That battle is in prayer. The battle is in prayer. It's a prayerful battle. Ephesians 6 mentions prayer over and over again, and it says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities, uh, this coming darkness, the spiritual uh, presence of evil, and it's, we battle with them in prayer. Listen, if you're not prayerful, you're living a defeated life. Your will is conquered in prayer. A prayerless life is a declaration of independence from God. I don't need you. The more prayer, the more yielded and submitted your life becomes. It's a prayerful battle. And lastly, it's a community battle. Jesus battles personally. Jesus battles prayerfully. But also look at this. Jesus battles in a community. 
Jesus leaned heavily on his closest friends and companions. Now, they were pretty much worthless, right? I mean, they fell asleep and they, they weren't very helpful. But that's not the case here. That's not the case with us. If you're going to conquer your will, it's a personal battle, this private battle, it's a prayerful battle, but it's also a community battle. It's, it's an opportunity for you to invite the closest people around you, to not resist people, but to say, hey, I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling. A few weeks ago, I took a friend out and asked him, hey, can we just go out for breakfast this morning and maybe um, hang out together? And I just shared with him vulnerably some of the struggles I was dealing with. Just complete vulnerability, complete honesty, laying out for him. I just said, I just need you to pray with me. Just be, help me be accountable for this. It's a community battle. Listen, Adam and Eve rebelled, saying, not my will, not your will, but ours be done. Jesus conquers that and says, not my will, but yours be done. And because of Jesus' victory in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have the opportunity to lay your stubborn will down before the Father and to experience restoration and mercy and grace and forgiveness and effectiveness in ministry, to be a useful tool in the hands of the Master. But you first have to win this battle, and I can't win it for you. I can't drag you to victory. I can't drag you to spiritual freedom. I can't shepherd you to green pastures if you're constantly willful and stubbornly resisting everything that the Lord is trying to do in your heart. You have to sign. You have to give the Lord your final yes. You have to give your will over to the Lord. And once you do that, you're going to find Victory, you're going to find intimacy, you're going to find fellowship, you're going to find effectiveness, you're going to find usefulness in ministry, you're going to find a right heart. Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles 16:9, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You're going to find God pinpointing you, saying, There He is. There she is. I'm going to strengthen her because her heart is fully committed to me. This is our act of worship. To lay down your will, Romans 12 says that by the mercy of God to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that's your spiritual worship. If you're worshiping with a rebellious, unyielded, stubborn will, it's not worship. No matter how loudly you sing, if you wave a banner, if you run up and down the aisles, it doesn't matter. If you're stubborn, resistant, and willful, you're not worshiping. The acceptable worship to God is a yielded, submitted, living sacrifice. That's holy and acceptable to God. That's what he calls us all to do. And so, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would give us a yielded spirit. Jesus, even some of your last words were, I yield my spirit. I gave up my spirit. To you, I entrust my spirit. But it began here in the garden, Jesus. You said, not my will, but yours. Lord Jesus, would you forgive us for our stubborn willfulness that says, God, not your will, but, but let me just live my will for my life. Would you forgive us for that? Would you give us a pure, undivided heart that is acceptable to you, that is holy and pleasing to you, a surrendered, submitted will? 
Jesus, I pray that we would be yielded and surrendered to you. Thank you for giving us that great example by drinking the cup of wrath and by not exerting a human will. We thank you for surrendering to the cross. We pray that we would do the same, that we would take up our cross and follow you. And in that, I pray that we would be pleasing in your sight. I thank you for the opportunity to worship together with the community of Christ followers today. And I pray that in the context of biblical community, in a prayerful battle, and in a personal battle, that we would surrender to you. Would you let it be so? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.